Bobamex Network Production. Bobamex fans, we're 550 plus shows and counting thanks to your support of our sponsors. Get the Bobamex app for iOS and Android today. Save money with discount code PULPMX at BTOsports.com and click the Amazon banner on PULPMX.com for all other online purchases. It's the BTOsports.com Steve Mackles Show, presented by Fox Racing on RacerXOnline.com. The original Moto Podcast, featuring legends of the past, stars of today, season previews and race reviews, introspection, opinion, facts, and laughs. Here's your host, Steve Mathis. Welcome, everybody, to the BTOsports.com RacerX podcast presented by Fox Racing. Thanks for listening. Use the code PULPMX when you're checking out at BTOsports.com to save money. And anything you need for your bike or body, they've got it. Of course, the Millsaps, Brayton, and Short on the BTO Sports KTM team. BTOsports.com, they support the sport. And uh, Fox Racing, the global innovation motocross leader. Uh, they've got Flex Air, 2016 Flex Air stuff now, of course. Fox and Star Wars teaming up to produce a limited edition line of uh, helmets and gear. Check them out, foxhead.com. If your dealer doesn't have Fox, then uh, I suggest go to a new dealer because everybody's got Fox gear. So thanks to BTOsports.com and Fox for doing this. This is the Racer X Podcast. I'm Steve Mathis. With me on the line, GNCC champion, uh, 250 motocross GP winner, uh, Supercross motocross uh, top competitor over the years, now an AMA Hall of Fame member. Rodney Smith, what's up, Rodney? How are you? Oh, not too bad. They're doing really well. Thank you. We finally connected on this thing. Thank God. <laughs> yeah, we've been busy. You know, ever, it seems like I'm more busy now since I uh, quit racing. I know. Hey, talk about the AMA Hall of Fame thing. How was that? That's got to be awesome. You, you know what? It was, uh, it was a really cool experience. Um, just the emotions and the experience of reconnecting with a lot of old racers and and even your current friends and family, you know, people you haven't heard from a long time, just everybody calling up and congratulating you and, and just going through the whole ceremony. It was way bigger than I ever expected. And uh, the whole trip to Florida and meeting the other Hall of Fame members at the same time and hearing their stories, mm-hmm. you know, I can't, even, I can't even explain it. I think one of, the, uh, one of the coolest things for me and the way to explain it was uh, on Sunday after the celebration of the induction on saturday mm-hmm. we did some interviews at the uh, ims motorcycle show and somebody asked me in an interview says what did you think after last night's you know ceremony and i said you know from the time i started riding a motorcycle at five years old i go not one time in my life did you ever dream or even think about being in the ma hall of fame i said you know you you grew up wanting to be a racer and you want to win races and you want to win championships and uh being one of the best racers you can and i said then after being retired for eight years I get a call from the AMA saying I'm inducted into the AMA Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. It was like winning one of the biggest championships I ever I ever won, and I never even knew I was entered in it. You know, it, it was just a, a huge emotion. It was cool. Yeah, really, when you think about it, like, you don't think about, like, making a motorcycle Hall of Fame, and then you're like, holy shit, like, I'm, I'm in there. That's pretty cool. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, that's what it, it was weird, because, you know, your whole life, you dream of being a racer. I mean, one of our first dreams is becoming a factory racer. Right. Which is one of the things I try to, you know, talk out of my clients, you know, I don't, <laughs> you don't want to end your dream at a factory racer, you know, you want to be a champion, because I've seen throughout my career, a lot of racers, that that was their main dream of their life, their whole dream was to become a factory racer. And once they achieve that goal, they, they kind of like, they let down. It's like, okay, I made it. I mm-hmm. achieved it. 
And then that next year of racing isn't really all that great. And then the factories let them go, and you know, then they're never around again, and their their career ends short. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the biggest things you could do is you don't want to set your short, you know, yourself short. So you always want to become a champion. I want to be a champion in whatever whatever category you're racing. You know, right? Because if you're in in the hunt of a championship, you're going to obviously be a factory rider. So. You don't want to sell yourself short, but at the same time, like we were just talking about, not once throughout anybody's career or since you were a kid, do you ever, ever think about, God, someday I'm going to be in the AMA Hall of Fame. Yeah. It's just something we don't think of. You know, we want to be a champion. We want to be a racer. You want to, you know, win races. But never, you know, you don't think about being in the AMA Hall of Fame. And what a cool experience, you know, just now knowing that my name's there on the wall with all the other greats of motorcycling. And, you know, most of them are all my heroes. Five-time GNCC titles, I guess, you know, and all, everything else you've done. That's pretty pretty amazing. Um, second overall at the ISDE, I believe, too. Um, what are you doing now? What's going on? You got your, your academy going on still? I am. I'm, I, uh, I, I retired from racing about 2011 when Suzuki kind of let go of all racing here in America. Mm-hmm. I was still employed with American Suzuki and working with their off-road team and stuff, and Mike Webb was running the motocross team in, in motocross, and I was kind of helping out on the off-road side, and and then when American Suzuki shut the doors on all racing at that time, uh, I got a fun, funny phone call right away from Honda Brazil, and I went down in 2012 and worked for Honda in South America, and I managed the motocross team. Back, and back, back to so, Brazil. Did you ever think you'd be back in Brazil? <laughs> no, I didn't, and it was a great opportunity at the time, and it was funny how the timing, you know, I mean, a month later after I get let go, let go from Suzuki, Honda mm-hmm. calls me. And I went down there, and I went back and forth that year, again, traveling quite a bit, but... uh it was a really cool experience, and they, they made an offer to me, and they wanted me to take over the team for like a five- to ten-year program. Mm-hmm. Honda in Brazil is run like Honda America, whereas they, they, they run the race team straight out of Honda. Mm-hmm. And like in Europe, Martin Racing is, is Honda's factory race team, but yep. it's not really you know in-house. Right. So Brazil, Honda's the biggest manufacturer down there, and they're putting all the money into the sport. So not only do they have some of the biggest motocross teams down there and satellite teams, they also sponsor the Brazilian Motocross Championships. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to separate the media or their promotions department from the race team and the, uh, you know, the promotions side of sponsoring the events because everybody always claims that if there's ever a problem, Honda gets their way because they own the series. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to kind of have me take over, be Rodney Smith Honda Racing in Brazil. Right. And it was a great opportunity. I thought about it for a long time, but, you know, it just at that time wasn't going to work out. I have a seven-year-old daughter here in America just starting kindergarten at that time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with my wife, I just didn't think for the family side of it, it would be the greatest move of my career. So I chose not to do that. I came back home here in America and I started a Rodney Smith off-road training facility. And I get a lot of the Brazilians come over here. All the factory riders come over here in the winter in January, February, March and train with me Mm -hmm. because the Brazilian season doesn't start till usually around May. So uh, they come over here and get three, four months of physical training we dial in their bikes we get a lot of the products from here from the you know pro circuit and fmf and all the different people and and kind of build their race bikes and they go back down there and race their season right and and throughout the rest of the year i have my own clients that are here in northern california that i go to the races and help them at loretta's and and it's doing good it just keeps me really busy (laughs) yeah really right well you were always known i Correct me if I'm wrong, but you're always known as a guy that you know put a lot of work in. Obviously, you're talented on a motorcycle, but you also train pretty hard and uh, and all that. So I imagine like a guy like you, and also too, you know, like I said, five five GNCC titles in the woods, a different type of racing, and then a, a top motocross competitor forever. You've really got like a great sort of knowledge base of all these different disciplines and and training on and off the bike and everything else. So it's probably big, probably uh, you got a lot to offer these kids and these guys that come up. 
Yeah, it really works out good. Again, most of the time I find it almost beneficial that my motocross guys I take out into the woods and teach them how to, oh, really? how to kind of yeah. ride off-road a little bit because it teaches them how to look further ahead and how to sure. read the trail because you never know what's around the next corner. And, mm-hmm. and then my off-road guys that I work with, they seem to be a little bit more laid back and not as aggressive right. because out in the woods when you go trail riding, you got to kind of be careful that there's not somebody coming the other way. So you're not fully racing all the time. You're kind of trail mm-hmm. riding. So I take my off-road guys more to the motocross tracks, and I try to I try to get my <laughs> motocross guys out in the woods when I can. But yep. matter of fact, we just came from a big Thanksgiving trip up in the mountains where I grew up riding, and uh, I had a four or five. Actually, I had I think six clients up there that were motocrossers, and we had a great week of riding. It was really cool, and uh, Mother Nature brought a little bit of snow and ice to the ground, so oh, it made it a little bit a little bit funner, and uh, yep. we had a good time. Take me back uh, in the time machine, back to your career. Um, I was a kid in Canada following, reading the magazines, everything else. You were a solid pro. You were on Yamaha's number 34. If you go back in the Racer X vault, there's a ton of top 10 finishes and um, you know some really solid results, 84, 85, that kind of thing. And then the next time I remember you, again, just as a kid following it, was you got second or third at a 250 gp in brazil and you had been down there uh riding so the transition from america to brazil like were you just tired of privateering it pounding your head against the wall not getting like of course these are the days of four factory teams and you know 10 guys that, that made money and then how did you get tired of that and how did the thing about going down to brazil start and then obviously that starts the second part of your career but talk first like, a little bit about those early years in america and why you decided to leave well, it was a little bit different. I had a couple of different reasons. I was riding, like you said, on a Yamaha. And I think it was uh, 83 was my first full year outside of high school. I went out and traveled the motocross circuit. And I did mm-hmm. pretty well that year. Yeah. In 84, you know, I got a little bit more help from Yamahas. It was me and uh, A.J. Whiting and Mike Byer and a couple other kids on Yamahas. And, and we all struggled that year. The Yamaha was one of the slowest 125s on the circuit. Yeah. And uh, we were working with Yamaha, trying to make them faster and and I think that was the year actually Ron Lachine was riding the rotary valve factory mm-hmm. bike. And, you know, we were struggling with the other production bike and trying to get it to go faster. And, you know, I had some good results. I had a couple of thirds and, and, uh, but then I had a lot of DNFs because the bike would finish good one moto and then break down the next moto. Yeah. Yamaha the whole time kept promising 1985 would be a good year. Just keep hold in there. You know, we get through this year. <laughs> we're going to have a really good 125. But they weren't. They, were, 19... they were worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's what happened is in 85 when they came out and I got to Gainesville, Florida, because back then the Nationals ran in conjunction with Supercross. Right. I think the first race of the season was Gainesville mm-hmm. in the National, and then the next week's Daytona Supercross. And um, it was the slowest bike on the field. I mean, we just struggled. <laughs> there was only me and I think uh, Keith Bowen maybe on them. Yeah. And and that winter, when Golden States here in California were real big, back when all the yep. pros used the Golden State Series to uh, – get ready for the nationals and stuff like that back here. Right. I, I won a couple of rounds of the 500 golden state series against Larson's and a bunch of the top pros. Mm-hmm. And I, per, I went to Yamaha after Gainesville and asked them if I could jump up to the 500 class. And I think I went to Daytona and got seventh or ninth, even in the 250 supercross. Mm-hmm. So I, I just had enough of the 125 Yamaha. I didn't want to spend another year of my, you know, when I was supposed to really excel you right. know, away from the privateer rinks and, and make my good jump and, and have some good results. We were struggling with a bike again. And Yamaha didn't climb me. They said, no, we need to keep you in the 125s. We don't have any bikes out there. We need to keep you and Keith on them. And, and then I got the offer to go to Brazil, and, and uh, it was pretty good money, actually. So 
I just made a decision, I, you know, go down there and make some money or stay here and struggle. And right. it turned out to be just a different curve. Um, you know, looking back at it, would I've changed it? No, I think it was a real good decision for me. You know, there's a lot of fast racers out there, and, and, and everybody's good. There's a lot of fast guys, and sometimes just that, you know, a certain door opens up yeah. and helps everybody. Did you ever ride one of your buddies' Hondas and just go, oh, my God, what, what am I doing? <laughs> you know, it's a funny story. No, I didn't at that time. And here's what happened was we even went down to Brazil. Me and Kenny Keelan actually teamed up together for Yamaha in Brazil. Okay. And Kenny Keelan went down there with me, and uh, we got to Brazil, and we struggled on that 125. Same thing here in America. Right. There was a couple of factory Honda Brazilian riders that were beating us in the 125 class. We were we were holding our own, but we were every now and then getting beat by them, you know. Uh-huh. But in the 250 class, we could smoke them. And then in 1986, I signed on with another team out in South America. Mm-hmm. And I actually rode Kajivas and KTMs. And I won everything there was. I even finished third in the 125 GP when it came down to Brazil. And actually, um, um, Mickey Diamond came from America yeah, and won both right. motos. Yeah, and you got third. And and I took third on a on a stock Kajiva, which I beat all the factory guys from Europe. Oh wow! I didn't. I don't remember that result. See, that's why I need to check Cycle News before I do these things. I remember, you know, the Suzuki result in 250 GPs that really got you a, a name. But I didn't know that. Yep. Yeah, third. Yep, in uh, in '86 I took third in the 125 GP when it came down there, and then I actually my my team owner was working with Kajiva trying to trying to get me over into Europe that next year in the 125 class, mm-hmm. and I don't know what happened, uh, money or something or whatever. Anyway, Kajiva and him were negotiating for me to race the Brazilian championships and go race the GPs for Kajiva, and for whatever reason, whatever happened, I don't know because I was just riding for him. He he yeah. basically hired me, right? Kind of like a uh, kind of like the the. Um, JGR teams and stuff today. Basically, yeah, yeah. he was a rich guy that put the team together, and right. I did whatever he came up with. <laughs> and so, '87, we switched to Hondas. We okay. rode Hondas, and then I just cleaned house. I started winning every moto. Well, see, yeah, um, like you look at the Racer X results. So, you in '85, they end. Then two years later, you have a ninth in Daytona on a Honda, and then you don't have any results again in America for three more years. You, so you, you know what's funny yeah. is that ninth at Daytona, I was leading the last lap. And I got stuck that's, in the mud. That's the Ricky mud race. Yeah, that's the, Ricky, that's the Ricky Ryan race, right? Yep, yep. I should have. I had that right in the mechanics area. I'll never forget it. Uh, Lapper went in my line and did something and forced me to go around. And when I went around my line, I got stuck. And uh, But actually, actually, I take it back. The guy that should have won that race was Keith Bowen. He threw yeah. a chain. Yeah, I think on the white flag, and I took over the lead, and then I got stuck in the Ricky Ryan one. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah, Bowen was was checking out. I, I worked at Factory Yamaha for a number of years, and Bob Oliver, who was there when you were there, uh, he yep. told me the story, and he was like, "Yeah, it was. It, it should have been Keith's moment." Um, yep, I, I totally give it to him. <laughs> so when when Mike Byer gets third in the 125 Nationals in '84 on a Yamaha, beating AJ Whiting, and you know only getting beat yep. by Ward, you know. Did we ever check for a 167 in that thing? Did anybody ever check that out? <laughs> Good job yeah, by I Mike, though. I have no though. idea. Good job by Mike, because those bikes were terrible. They were. They um, were. They were light switches. We could yeah. get them fast, but then they'd break. You know, right, I was right. doing. I was up here in Northern California at that time, and, and, and um, Bud Ashland was doing a lot of Yamaha's in-house mm-hmm. motors and stuff, and he lived up here in Stockton by Kenny Roberts. So I was getting a lot of stuff first and trying to test it, and it was funny because I was young, so in one sense it was cool, but in another mm-hmm. sense I think it also ruins a rider because it's hard testing, you know, and keeping racing and focused. And yep. and uh, I remember I was getting some bikes that were unbelievably fast here on my street. When I'd put the bike together and go out and test it in the street, you know, before I'd go out to the track, yeah, yeah. 
it would be the fastest bike I ever rode, and I'd get to the dirt and put a load on it, and it wouldn't get out of its own way. Oh, I know. I, I've done so many of these podcasts with guys that are like that didn't ride Hondas, and they're just like, oh, my God, I don't know what I was doing. You know what I mean? Like, it was. Yeah. Um, I, I got a chance to go back and ride an 86 Honda in Brazil for some uh, Supercross or something like that. And, yeah. You know, the 86, 87 Hondas. Oh, the Hondas were so good back then. They were. Um, so I was going to say, okay, so I was going to say, how did you ever get to Brazil full-time? But somewhere along the line, you and Kenny Keelon meet a dude from Brazil who brings you down for a race. You do well. Yep. You enjoy it. And then the next year, he's like, come down and make some money and, and race our series. So that's, yep. yeah. It was, uh, it was actually right after Daytona in 85. The guy with Scout was there looking for a couple riders, and they approached a bunch. I think they even approached Mike Byer and a bunch of us. Yeah. And uh, God, would... I, I agreed to it, and then Kenny Keelan agreed to it. So they brought us both down there for the whole year, the rest of the year of 1985. And in '86, um, they kept Kenny Keelan on the Yamaha team, and I switched to the Kajiva KTM team. And then Kenny got hurt, I think, in the Florida Winter Am series that next winter. So then he struggled for a little while, and then mm-hmm. he ended up coming back to America. And then Yamaha hired, um, oh God. Oh God, um, I'm, I'm, I'm Danny Storbeck. Oh, Storbeck. Okay, that's where Storbeck went. So then oh, I didn't know that. Storbeck okay. came yeah. down there for a year, and uh, me and him went at it. But I, I held him back. I think he only beat me two motos out of like thirty. Yep. But but um, it was good. I had like at that time I had a good confidence. I was rolling. My bikes were good, right. and I adapted to the life of Brazil. And and uh, you know in '87 when the GP came down there, it was mm-hmm. pretty funny because all the you know GP hero kids. Well, matter of fact, they came from Hollister. Okay. So yeah. I was paying attention. Ricky Johnson won Hollister, and he won by about 12, 13 seconds over Eric DeBoer's both motos. Uh-huh. And uh, so when they got down to South America the next week or two weeks after, because they came right from right from right. America to South America, um, in practice, I remember it was unbelievable. I was like three seconds a lot faster than all of them. <laughs> and I couldn't figure it out. Right. And then finally at the final end of the uh, um, time practice, the official time practice, and I was on my practice bike at that time, and they got up to within like almost two seconds of my time, which was still, I'm like, God, what's wrong? How am I, be, how am I so much faster than these guys? And then the rumor of the, of the European riders at that point was, well, this kid knows the track, and he's right. a local kid yeah. down there rides the track all the time. And I'm thinking to myself, no, we do one race a year here. We get one local race and then the GP. And uh, so I don't know this track any better than they do, you know, for the most part. And then I said, uh, and then I remember they started saying, well, he'll never make 40 minutes. Yep. And in Brazil, we raced 40-plus-2, just like they do in GPs. It yeah, was yeah. nothing new to me. Right. And me and Storbeck would push each other all the way to the end. So I go, it just made me matter. You know, I just kept, <laughs> they kept making excuses, and I kept going, okay, we'll yep. show you. And then on Sunday, I won the first moto pretty easy, and uh, it actually really did surprise me. And then the second moto, I crashed in the first turn and was dead last and came back to third. Yeah. And I went 1-3 for second overall. And then uh, then the rumor was, was well, he knows the track, right. you know, whatever, whatever. And so my – my uh, rich team owner guy says, well, I don't think you've ever been to Argentina, have you? And I said, no, because, well, we're going next week. Ah. <laughs> so we went down to Argentina, and I won both motos. And then that was it. You got a ride. And then, right. yep, and then Suzuki started talking to me, and I uh, right. went over to Europe after that. And I struggled in Europe. I, I really did. I struggled with the lifestyle. I struggled with uh, – I didn't have a lot of good people around me and friends. And it started becoming a job, and, and it was just tough. It was really tough. I had some good results, but at the same time – I started getting, I don't want to say lazy, but I lost my inner energy, and mm-hmm. I, I just wasn't having a good time. Weird, though. Like, you loved Brazil. You fit in there. It's a different country, different atmosphere. You fit in there, and you made it work, and you had success. 
And then so weird why you wouldn't adapt to Europe. Where were you based out of? Were you out of Belgium or where were you? I was in Italy. And Italy I think that okay. was where I was struggling because yeah, yeah. Uh, it was just a different lifestyle. You know, Brazil is a lot like America, a lot of good people. They all want to speak English and it was the lifestyle. You know, I could go to the the uh, malls, I could go to cinemas, okay. I could watch movies in English. You know, in Italy, I couldn't do nothing, and everything was real expensive. Yeah, yeah. And I lived outside. You know, it's funny as it is, I don't like big cities. I live, you know, an hour from San Francisco, and I hate going when I have to go to San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. But when I lived in Brazil, I lived in Sao Paulo, which is one of the third largest cities in the world. Sure, and, yeah. You know, to be out of my element, it, it, I got to say, that was one of the best things ever for me because everything was right there at my fingertips. Even I had tracks right in the middle of the city, which is unheard of. Yeah, yeah. Um, the rich guy that I, that I rode for, he bought some property and built a track right in the middle of the city for me. But, um, <laughs> you know, when I went to Italy, I lived outside of uh, any kind of population, so I had nothing yeah. to do. I was bored. You know, I started waking up later in the day because I didn't have nothing to do. I only had yeah, to go yeah. for a run and work out and then only had to ride. And I just started getting lazy and bored, and, and I didn't have a lot of good friends, you know. And, you know, as much as I even knew what I had to do, it was it was hard for me. Did you ride for Rinaldi? I did. Yeah, I that's what I thought. Okay. Ever hired. Yeah, 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 exactly, because he had just retired a little bit. Um, and, was you, was and, and both of us were learning, you know. And yep. I don't want to say anything bad about Rinaldi because, God, he's a great guy and gave yeah. a great opportunity. But mm-hmm. but at the same time, um, when, I was, when I was trying to – it was like he was learning, I was learning, he was learning as a team manager, and it was like I had to ride the bike the way he rode it, uh, jetting the bike set up, the suspension, and I was American rider. I rode further forward. You know, it was just tough trying to go, no, the bike's too rich. You know, I like it down leaner down low. And it's like, no, you blow it up. And it, we just struggled. We struggled with bike setup. It, it kind of started taking a lot of my confidence away. Was Puzar your teammate? Who was your teammate? Puzar was in yeah. 89, yeah. Yeah, okay, the next yeah. year or whatever. Um, yeah. And, and um, this is John Vandenberg, right? He was a champion at that point? John Vandenberg won the championship that year. Pekka Vakonen got second. I got third. Yeah. I and can't... actually, I was actually second. With only like twelve points, something like that, going into Unadil, and I got ear infection a lot, and, well, and got sick and, and missed a couple rounds or didn't. That's what I was gonna. I was gonna bring that up. I have that in my notes. Uh, Unadilla that year, you know, you were you, people remembered you, and you made your yep. reestablish your name. And as far as me as a kid in Canada, I mean, you know, and you're chasing the world championships and chasing Vandenberg and. I remember you came to Unadilla and it was a big deal, and we were getting cycle news, and it was a terrible race for you. Your hometown GP, you're probably oh so God, stoked, right? Yeah. And then just, yeah. Yeah, probably the biggest mistake I ever made. I, we had a month off before Unadilla, and I came home for the whole month, and, uh, you know, as a, mm-hmm. as a 20 year old kid, whatever, bought a bunch of jet skis and was out in the Delta every day jet skiing. And <laughs> right. next thing I know, I can't figure out why I can't walk in a straight line, and I just feel like I'm in a fog. and. Yeah, and uh, I got an ear infection, you know, and it just it wasn't good, and it, it struggled to get out of that. How was uh how was it riding for Rinaldi with Puzar, an Italian guy? And again, Rinaldi, great dude, but uh, you know, I've done one of these with Travis Parker, and I've talked to many, many GP riders over the years, and there's always uh, things that get a little funny sometimes when you you know having a yeah, hometown definitely. hero. Um, you know, Puzar was an awesome rider. He was a good guy. Um, um, I mean, him got along great. Italians are just different. You know, Italians are real um, opinionated. They're real strong-minded. A side of me has always said, I wish Americans were a little bit more that way, mm-hmm. but not as much. Um, you know, Italy is always the best. Italian flag, Italian-made motorcycles, Italian-made cars are always the best. <laughs> right. And they're very opinionated about it, you yeah. know. And us Americans are like, we don't care. We'll buy anything from China, whatever it is. All this cheap. We don't care whether it's yep. American-made or not. Right. 
And the side of me wishes we were a little bit more American, you know, proud of our proud to be Americans, you know. But I do think Italians are really strong, you know, leaning towards, you know, their 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 uh, their own kind, you know. They, right, they right. push for Italians. Sure, Puzar too. Definitely, yeah. that was. Puzar had the hair out the yeah, back. Yeah, he of the was helmet. very well liked. Ah, he, the, he was a hero, right? Like it was just a big yep. deal, world champion in in both classes. Um, so. Yep. Yep. Um, were you making any money? Were you doing all right that way? Uh, did you make I, more I money did. in Brazil? That's, or why, did... that's why I gave up on it. And, yep. and uh, well, it's funny because after I'd already signed my contract to go to Europe, I made pretty good money um, back then in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And uh, when Hollywood, I was racing for a rich guy, like I talked about earlier, but he, he was, uh, it's funny, he was, a, he was a rich guy in Brazil. He was a publisher. Mm-hmm. So he owned 13 different magazines. He owned Car and Driver. He owned uh, Keen Magazines. He had two motorcycle, a street bike magazine, a dirt off-road magazine. And so when he hired me and he started, and I started winning races and he put together this big team, he got Hollywood cigarettes to, to back it and sponsor it. And uh-huh. um, it's Hollywood cigarettes back then was the largest Brazilian company. Mm-hmm. So I was on billboards in the city. Like he could go, remember the Marlboro man? Yeah. Remember the country Marlboro yeah, yeah. guy in the horse? Yeah. Well, that was basically me for Hollywood cigarettes. Mm-hmm. I was so well known in Brazil. I was famous anywhere I went, any shopping mall, any, you know, Dude. anywhere, yeah, I went, yeah. any small city, <laughs> they all knew who I was. And I was on the big billboards and stuff. It was crazy. I'd drive through the city and see a big picture of me on my motorcycle doing a whip at Hollywood cigarettes, you know? Yeah. And hey, and, 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 so you, got, when, and you got the cover I, of MXA that year, too. You were on the cover of MXA, I believe. Big deal. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And so then when I decided to start talking to Rinaldi and was thinking about going to GPs, at that time, I'd won everything there was in Brazil. There was uh-huh. no more, you know, uh, I was winning really easy. Right. And um, so I wanted more. I wanted more. The GPs, I just did good in the GPs. So I was thinking about, you know what? I was ready to go to the GP circuit and try something different. But at the same time, so when I was secretly talking to Rinaldi about this, Hollywood Cigarettes found out. Mm-hmm. Well, they started approaching me, and they it was amazing how much money they were throwing at me not to leave. Oh, wow. It, yeah, got, yeah. it got to be really, 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 I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was like <laughs> 10 times more than what I was getting paid by the rich guy. Wow. And they, my image and stuff was so big at that time in Brazil yep. that they did not want me going, but I'd already signed the contract. It, it was pretty amazing, but, yeah. but it was a good, you know, I spent, I spent some good time in Brazil. The racing was good in that air. It's funny because the GPs had 72,000 spectators at it. Any local race I'd go to every weekend would have 30,000, 40,000 people. Jeez, crazy, huh? Yeah, they were, yeah, racing was big. It was almost like, like about, so you say Storbrecht came down and Keelan was there and you were the guy. Um, it was almost like, you know, the Chicken and Tishner went over to Japan, Kyle Lewis. Like it was like that. Like Brazil was before Japan as far as bringing yep. one or two Americans over, paying them good and. And, you know, racing locally. Yep. So, um, yeah. Matter of fact, you know, like Brazil right now, I have a couple of Brazilian kids that come over and train with me and stuff. But down there right now is Adam Chatfield. Yep. Um, Carlos Campano just clinched the championship, and he was a MX3 world champion uh, from Spain. Yeah, yeah. He's won the championship down there a couple of times. So there yeah, that's is, crazy. And there's a couple other Americans that are down there. I know uh, Blake, or not Blake Baggett, but, um, oh, God, uh, Blake Wharton went down there last year. Oh, did he? Yeah. Um, a couple of guys so have been still, down there trying their, you know, right. trying to get in it, but it's just different racing. Uh, but, um, it, it's tough down there. The tracks are different. They're faster. They're more hard packed. Mm-hmm. Uh, practice tracks aren't as good as they are here. Yep. That's why a lot of my top guys come here to practice because yeah, the tracks yeah. are in better shape. 
Were you ever yeah, we had, uh, were you ever sketched out down there, or was it not that timed? Like, not, I just think of Brazil yeah. and South America as being sketchy now. But was it that way, or did you ever fear for? You know what? It, it's not. It's if you get down there and you're you're in a suburb or you're in the city and, you, and you're with normal people, and I speak language fluently. Okay. Um, it, it's just like being here in America. It's like if you went downtown in the Compton area of L.A., you're you're going to get in trouble. Yeah, um, yeah, so same idea. I remember yeah, being idea. down there. You know, my mom and dad would call me up and say, hey, you know, we just heard something about Brazil. And I'm like, really? I don't know anything about it. And then I'd call them up and say, hey, I just heard some guy went to McDonald's and shot 20 people in L.A. Yep. You know, it was yep. all you hear about is the bad part of the country. But you know what? It's a lot like America, and it's almost like when I was down there in 2012 for Honda, I was amazed at how the technology and everybody's on cell phones and gated communities. It's beautiful. I mean, right. it, it's nice down there. It really is. But, you know, there's some poor areas, you know. Yeah, of course. You, you right. open up your eyes, you know where to go, you know what to do, you don't go in certain areas at night. Um, so you right. do you do two years with GPs, and you do putting good results. Um, and then I remember... Like you race in America a lot in like ninety and ninety one, and you know, you, you I kinda... came home and I felt like I missed my calling. I feel like I never really got a chance to ride one twenty five nationals. I hadn't ridden one twenty five much for a while since right. I was riding two fifty GPs. Uh-huh. I came home and I got a couple of Suzuki one twenty fives from Suzuki, and uh, just kind of went out for fun. At a, at a, I don't even know if I went out on all of them. I just went out on a, a few of the nationals with a buddy of mine here from home, kind of yeah, like yeah. a privateer, right? And. Uh, I was getting some thirds and fourths and, and kind of struggling because we were living on the road. And and then I hooked up with Talon Bowen and really took a, a liking in him. Me and him hooked up together. And NorCal guys. I kind of took it on as I started training Talon and, uh, you know, trying to help his career out. And that's – so, 91, I spent a lot of time with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, he would have been – was he Suzuki then or was he Cowie? Uh, Suzuki probably. He was yeah. Cowie and then went Suzuki, I think Yeah, right. Um, you got fifth at the Mudder in Hangtown. <laughs> The one moto. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, I can imagine that. That was a nightmare. But Yeah, that was a, that was a pretty pretty crazy race, actually. That was probably one of the biggest. I don't want to say the worst mud race yeah. I ever rode, but right. the most water on the track, for sure. Oh, there was it, a lot of water. Yeah, I just remember, like, you came back from the GPs, and again, you had two solid years there. You didn't win a title, but you won, won races, came close. You came back to America, yeah. and again, you put in some good results. Whenever you raced, like you said, you didn't do a full-time deal, but whenever you did race, you put in good yeah. results, made Supercross main events. Were you trying to get another break in America, or was it something? No, no, no you were just no, like, hey. I was I, just riding for fun. Right, yeah. Yeah. I was done. I was retired, basically. I remember I got third at Unadilla. John Michelle Bale won it. Cooper got second. I got third, and... I was just having fun. I was just, you know, fulfilling some time. I've I, I got to be honest with you. When I came home from Europe in 89, mm-hmm. 90, I really didn't even enjoy riding a motorcycle anymore. So I took a little bit of a break, and then I started riding a few 125 Nationals. I hooked up with Talon. I had more fun trying to teach him the ropes, and uh, he had knew nothing about training. And so right. I was starting to train him. We were starting out small, you know. He couldn't even run 20 minutes on a Monday, you know, when the race was coming up for that weekend. He's like, I'm going to be too sore for press day on Thursday. And I'm like, are you kidding me? We can go for a 20-minute jog, nice right. and slow. Yeah. So I was trying to teach him how to train, work into it. And, uh, you know, I remember Axton, Virginia, he got third, I got fourth. He passed me late in the moto. And I'm like, you jerk. I go, how can you do that? He had so much more desire than I had. Yeah, yeah. I remember that's, that's what was missing. I was in better shape. I could outrun him. I could out-physical do anything to him. But I didn't have that burning desire anymore, you know? So, um, and, and so it was cool to see him with desire and try to help get that physical strength back into him and watch his career. Well, and hey, then he kinda, in 92, I... Yeah, he kind of copied your career I, a little bit. You know what I mean? Yeah. He really did. Right. He did yeah. go to Europe right after yeah, that. Yep. Right. So 
does Webb is Mike Webb running off road Suzuki when you when he calls you to say what about riding in the woods or how does that happen? So he, I go to '92. What happened was uh, in '92 at the same time I was riding a few nationals, a couple big off road races. My family grew up riding off road and trails. My brother rode enduros and stuff. He was never, you know, a top rider, but he was he was a top rider here in Northern California. And one of the big races all the time was Virginia City Grand Prix was around here up in Nevada. So in 92, I decided I was going to go do that race. And uh, I think it was Larry Rossler had won it like eight or nine, ten years in a row. Yep. And there's, I don't remember if Ty Davis wrote it that year or not, but there was Larry Rossler and all the off-road guys were at it. And it was still big back then. And the club even put up a $1,000 silver bounty to beat him. <laughs> and I remember I went up there and signed up just like any other guy. And I, I, I started two minutes behind him. Yeah, they started, I don't even know, 10 guys to a minute. And uh, I caught him on the first lap and took over the lead. And my dad even told me, he goes, now, if you catch Larry Rossler, all you got to do is ride with him, you know, because yeah, you yeah. started two minutes behind him. Right. And I, I came across on the white flag with a 13-minute lead that day, and, and they threw the checker before. I was the only one that did five laps. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I won a big major off-road event. It was huge. Yep. Uh, to this day, I still have the $1,000 silver bars. They're 120-ounce oh, uh, nice. bars. Yeah, yeah. At one time, they went up to $8,600 because silver was real high. <laughs> I think now they're about $4,000 or something like that. Yeah. But they're sitting in my trophy case. They're really cool. Oh, yeah, that is cool. Yeah. Um, I went on and rode the Idaho two-day qualifier for six days, and I won both days there. I went to Oregon and won that. And I think I went to Washington or something and won that. I won three of the uh, six-day qualifiers. And Dave Bertram and Mike Webb were at Suzuki. Dave mm-hmm. Bertram was a racer for Suzuki, but kind of right. taking over as team manager until Mike Webb stepped in, and Mike was stepping in for, for 93. And um, so me, Mike, and, and Dave were all in conjunction of trying to get something going for 93. And I was a little bit scared at first of signing with Mike because I didn't want it to become a job again, and I was just kind of having fun doing these races. And, and they talked me into going to six days, and I think I even went back down to Brazil for vacation and said, hey, look, if you guys get me on the six-day team, call me, let me know, I'll come home early. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they, because they couldn't get AMA convinced that a motocrosser needed to be on the team. So they, they were trying to say, hey, look, this guy knows off-road. He knows how to work on his bike. He was an off-road guy kind of before motocross. We need to take him. And so finally AMA decided to do something different and took me, and I went down there and uh, finished second overall. Won almost all the tests, but I got I got crashed in one of the tests and lost 37 seconds or something. Oh, geez, yeah. I lost the whole six days by 33 seconds. <laughs> oh. But but had a great – me and Giovanni Sala battled the whole time. It was a great experience. Here, here's a funny story. They're all telling me how – you know, Dave Bertram's down there kind of as a chase rider helping mm-hmm. me get going, and he's teaching me the ropes. And day one hasn't even started yet. And I'm online, and they're like, okay, here's what you do. Follow – there's this guy on my minute. He's from Sweden, and it was Joe uh, jo, uh, Hansen. Something Johansson. Peter? Peter Johansson? Was he sweet? I don't think he was sweet. Was he sweet? I yes, don't I think yeah. it was. Yep. I think that was him. Peter, oh, anyway. Top Swede, one six days before. I don't even know if they told me that. They just said he's a really smart rider. You know, pay attention to what he's doing. So I'm like, okay, cool. And so this first day of, of the six days as it takes off, there's a guy, I think there was three of us, it was super dusty, and there's three of us on the minute. Mm-hmm. And the one guy's pretty much taking control, and he takes off early out of the checks, dusts me and the other guy out every time, and he's just out of control, <laughs> pinned. And I remember watching him. There wasn't even a test section, and he smashes his pipe completely flat like a pay. I'm like, you know, you're trying to save your bike in the, in the areas you can, and yeah. you've got to go as fast as you can in the test, right? Uh-huh. I'm thinking, this guy is pretty much an idiot. The guy is just pinned the whole time, and... 
And then the other guy, the Swede guy that they told me to pay attention to what he's doing, he was real laid back, real calculated, yep. nice, smooth rider. You know, he'd talk to me at the checks, and he'd say, hey, you know what? You go first this time. we got plenty of time. Yep. We're going to have six, seven, eight minutes when we get to the other end, so just take your time. I'll lay back behind you out of the dust. You know, we were talking, taking turns. Okay, no problem. Well, the end of the day, and, and meanwhile, when we come to the test, mm-hmm. these two guys were fast. I'm like, holy <laughs> crap. Yeah, yeah. I remember going, man, you know, in the test, we're all staying about the same. We're not uh-huh. much different. And right. I remember going, God dang, if these guys are that fast, how fast are the good guys, you know? That was my, <laughs> I'll never forget. I was thinking, the good guys got to be unbelievable. Right, well, right. when the results came out from day one, yeah. the three of us were one, two, three overall. Yeah, yeah. You're like, wait a minute. I'll never, for, I'll never forget going, holy crap, we are the three fastest. Okay, now I see what we're doing. Yeah, really, right? That's funny. But it was and, cool. And yeah, your really cool experience. I think your result, it's your second was the best result until Sipes won this year, this past year. Yep. So it stayed, yep. this, yeah, it was that, that held up that long, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, BTOsports.com Racer X podcast presented by Fox Racing with uh, AMA Hall of Famer Rodney Smith on the line. Uh, listen to this commercial uh, from Race Tech. Use the code PulpMX2015 to save yourself money at Race Tech, which I believe Rodney you used Race Tech back in the day, I think. And uh, as a matter of fact, I use them right now. They sponsor my schools and everything. They help oh, out all my riders. Fantastic. Well, they're on board with this podcast, and we love them. And uh, also to Michelin, Michelin Starcross Five Tire. Uh, check them out, MichelinMotorcycle.com. They a uh, brand new tire, all launched. Uh, new casing, lighter weight, uh, better compounds, everything else. Listen to this commercial. We'll be right back with uh, Rodney Smith. Hey, thanks for listening to the BTOsports.com RacerX podcast presented by Fox Racing. Race tech people, racetech.com. These guys have been in business for over 30 years, supplying racers, riders, and tuners with factory-level suspension to everyday racer. There's a lot of top suspension guys in the pits that got their start with race tech. Trust me on this. There's more than a few guys that have learned underneath Paul Feed and gone on to, uh, to great things. Paul Feed, the original suspension guru. I guarantee you... And probably 82.7% of you people listening to this podcast need some sort of suspension work, whether it's uh, just a simple oil change with new bushings and seals, give your bike some love, whether it's the right spring rate for your weight and or speed, or maybe you just need some revalving on the machine to uh, help you uh, take first place in that Chicken Licks Raceway. Something something uh, on your bike needs attention for Race Tech. I guarantee you. Freeze, Gilmore, some of the guys just using uh, Race Tech Privateer Proven, they work with uh, Ben Lemay also. They're back with Ben LeMay. And uh, they offer a full line of Race Tech high-performance springs. These springs are called high-performance because they're extremely lightweight for their rates and feature the tightest tolerances in the industry. You want to save 10%? At uh, Racetech, go to PulpMX2015 when you order. You can save 10% at Racetech.com. And they're uh, proud sponsors of this podcast, and we thank you guys. All right. Back to the show. Michelin tires are back, people. MichelinMotorcycle.com. Michelin Starcross 5, brand new, available in hard, medium, soft, and sand. Uh, their off-road tires are some of the best ones out there, and they've revamped this whole lineup. There's no one who knows these tires better than our own, Chris Kiefer. When they're calling it comfort casing technology, what are they talking about? Is this a fancy marketing term or what? No, it's actually the carcass of the tire itself, so how much it flexes or how you know sidewall stiffness that you have when you come into corners. And what's cool about this tire is even from the previous version, the MH3, it 
gives more. So when you hit square edge or you're coming out of a corner with some bumps, it has some give to it. It's more comfort, so it doesn't feel so rigid. A lot of that has to do with the, the CCT. So you're telling me the comfort casing at the end of the day, maybe it helps you a little bit to have some suspension in tires. Yeah, obviously it's flexing a little bit, but also, too, when you come into corners, you don't want it to roll on you. So they've got that dialed in to where you come into a corner and you still have enough stiffness where it grabs and bites, but yet straight line, you have comfort. Hey, as a former factory mechanic, Kiefer, I know all about mounting tires, um, so no problem for me to mount anything. Right. Well, maybe not a moose. Uh, you found mounting these new Michelin's uh, pretty easy, actually. Yeah, I'm a great test rider, but my mechanic skills are novice at best, so mounting the tire wasn't too bad. They sent me a bunch of tires to mount before testing, and I was out there busting in the garage, and normally you got to put some tires in the sun, let them soften up a little bit, but this, uh, the bead rolls on really nice. I didn't have to struggle. No curse words were, were sworn in the garage, so uh, it was a lot better for me, you know, putting these on. Four versions of this tire. They cover all the uses, Kiefer. Reduced weight, comfort casing technology, mounting traction handling. They do it all. Starcross 5, MichelinMotorcycle.com. Thank those guys. Check them out, the local dealer people. These guys know tires, and they know what they're doing. And we're back with uh, BTOsports.com, uh, Racer X podcast, uh, presented by Fox Racing with Rodney Smith. I don't no, no disrespect to Scott Summers, um, who was a GNCC champion and a great rider on an XR600. But I like to think, and maybe it's just my age, you know, where I'm at. But to me, GNCC racing, your entrance into it, uh, a few years later, Kajowski, uh, Cooper, uh, Fred Andrews, another moto dude. You guys coming into GNC really elevated that series and made it something where I, again, maybe, like, like I said, no disrespect to Scott Summers and his XR600, but um, you guys kind of changed that series into something where I think Moto fans were like, hey, I know these guys' names, and look at them battling it out, you know? Um, so, yeah, I like to think that you guys had a little bit of hand in that when you started in GNCCs. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right on that. And, and um, you know, I look at it as uh, this year when Villapoto went to GPs, everybody started paying attention to the GP series again and was watching the results. And, yep. and you know, most Americans don't really watch the, the GP series. No, no. And it was kind of the same way in off-road. You know, the off-road series was a good, healthy series. Like, you know, Scott Plessinger and Scott Summers, all those guys were, mm-hmm. were strong riders, and it was good. But but I think the three guys that stand out to me that came into it, and I think we all came into it right about the same time. I don't know. Fred Andrews might have been first, then me second, and then Ty Davis third. but Or I might have been first, and then right. Freddie, and then Ty. Somewhere right in there, we all three kind of got into off-road about the same and absolutely, I, I think I, I want to say that's one of the reasons we got inducted or I got inducted into the AMA Hall of Fame is because we brought the credibility to off-road. We stepped up the bar a little bit, um, and, and the motocross crowd started paying more attention to it and watching us, and then and then Guy Cooper came into it, you know, which yeah. is a, a household name in motocross, and mm-hmm. and then Kudrowski, you know, and uh, right. it, I, all that's made – I'll never forget my first contract with Webb was really not all that much money. And, and compared to what it was when I retired, it was probably 15 times more. Was it really? Huh? Um, wow. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. We let we raised the bar in off-road, and, you know, guys started making a living at it. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Scott Summers and them were doing pretty well when we got into it, but uh, he was like one of the only ones because he marketed himself really well. Yeah. But once he had, you know, competition always sells. You know, there's nothing like competition. Mm-hmm. As much as sometimes us racers like to win when it's easy, it really isn't that beneficial. You know, competition is what sells. Uh, it's always good competitions make you push harder, and people want to see racing. Did you did you take a little bit of a motocross approach to it 
and did you you know ramp up the aggression a little bit? Obviously, look, it's a three-hour race. It's really hard to you know go go gnarly on it. But did you did you notice that sort of a motocross mentality uh, was the way to go? Well, well, I think the biggest thing I noticed is is it wasn't always the fastest guy would win. Yeah, uh, motocross or off road kind of became more of a a thinking game, and and you had to be a little bit smart, and you had to be a little bit lucky too at times. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget when I got into it. Mike Webb hired me to do back then. We had uh, Steve Hatch, Randy Hawkins, and myself. Yep. And I think Randy Hawkins and Steve Hatch did national enduros, and then Steve did some GNCCs, and Randy did some hair scrambles, mm-hmm. and I did the reliability enduros for the six day series, and I also did the hair scrambles. Mm-hmm. And once in a while, Mike would have me go do a GNCC here or there. Right. And I got to be honest with you, at the very beginning, I, I didn't like the GNCCs. They oh, were okay. a lot tighter, yeah. you know, even compared to what they are today. Even the sports throughout my career of the sport of GNCCs, mm-hmm. the uh, sport changed. The trails changed. They, uh, it started becoming more of a faster racetrack. They weren't as tight and technical as they were back in the first years when I got started. Right. And I think, uh, you know, it started becoming more of a racing sport. We got it more on TV, so they had to be able to film it. Right. And the tracks got faster and wider. But, um you know, and, and in saying so, the sport changed. Because I remember when I first came into GNCCs, I tried to get out front early. Yep. And I would put all my energy into it and try to sprint away. But the track was so tight and technical, I'd start catching lappers so quick. And I couldn't get by them that then the guys would I'd have a 30, 40-second lead, and they'd close it in no time. Mm-hmm. And then we'd all be right together, and I wasted right. all my energy. Yeah, yeah. Well, then my, my later careers, uh, you know, right about the time I was retiring and stuff, um, the tracks were faster. You could actually sprint away right from the beginning and get away from them and then, and then win the race pretty easy. Mm-hmm. So the sport changed over the years, but, uh, you know, it's three hours was a long time to race. You had to save some energy. You had to train differently for it. Mm-hmm. Um, me and Kodrowski used to talk a lot about that. You know, I yeah. remember the days when two 30 minute motos with an hour and a half rest in between <laughs> seemed like it was harder than anything I've ever done. <laughs> right. And, and then we, now we're doing three hour races, you know, and, uh, but to be honest with you, you know, the 30-minute motos, your heart rate's a lot higher. So it's more of a sprint. You know, yeah. your heart rate's at 195, 200 for 30 minutes. Whereas when we were doing GNCCs, even though it seemed like we were pushing for the whole three hours, your heart rate really was staying right about 165, you know, 170-ish the whole time. Yeah. So it was a little bit different type of uh, a training thing you did. I always remember, look, you won five titles. So there's different different scenarios for each one of these and different things that happen in each one of these. And, and again, I'm a moto guy, but, I, you know, I followed the series. But I do remember, like... Early in the season, you would be way down in points. Maybe not every year, but a lot of years. And this guy would win, and that guy would win, and this guy's the new guy. And then, goddamn, by the end of the season, you start clicking it off. And then it's like, hey, who's the new? Who's the champ? The same as the old champ, Rodney Smith. Uh, you know, you you were consistent. You stayed the whole year. Guys would DNF a lot. Am I right, or am I just remembering it wrong? Like that's what it seemed to be like. Everyone would count you out as kind of like, ah, this guy's the hot new guy, and then it would be you, Edmondson, or any of these dudes, you know? And then, there you yeah, are, number one player. Yeah, I don't, re- I don't remember. I remember a couple years. I remember my first couple championships, I pretty much dominated right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. But then those later ones, I do remember a couple where Jason Raines got a pretty good point lead on yep. me, and, and I just stayed in there tight, never gave up. Matter of fact, Mark Hyde, you know, my biggest mentor in off-road, he kind of taught me that. He goes, man, we can't give up. You can never give up. You can't count yourself out. And, mm-hmm. and I'll tell you what, that was one year. If I would have gave up at all, I would have lost that championship. And, you know, I just kept struggling and pushing and pushing and pushing. And, and I pushed, actually pushed Reigns into making a mistake. And, and that's all it took. You know, next thing I know, I'm in the driver's seat. And, right. You know, Shane Watts was another one. Yeah, um, yeah, Wattsy, right. My biggest yeah. thing that I remember was I hated Florida. I, I don't know why. I don't like the state. I just struggled in the sand down there, even though I was a good sand motocross rider. 
I just hated Florida. And for me, the season always started around two in Georgia. And I, I pretty much have a pretty good career at Georgia. I think I won almost every year I went there. But, um, you know, and that's when the season would start for me. But but back in the early days of GNCCs also, they were kind of weird. There was a, It was like a 13-race championship, but they, they had four throwaways. So you only counted your nine best scores. Mm-hmm. And that was a weird scenario. And I yeah. remember I fought, I fought hard to get them to count all because I was a consistent guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I fought hard, and they finally started counting for the pros all 13 races. And once they did that, it was almost a little bit better for me. Right. Um, I remember that coming along. And then I also was one of the guys that fought real hard to get us not to be able to walk the courses on Friday because a lot of the guys would go out and walk the course. And it wasn't that they were walking it for safety. They were walking it for cheater lines. Yeah, yeah, for one sure. One of the biggest things right. I had trouble with off-road, getting into the off-road, was uh, – you know, not knowing and the people that were cheating. And, and I just hated it. You know, I was a fair racer. And I, I raced the racetrack all the time, and, and it was just tough. It was it's still going on today. I don't know how much you follow the series now, but I do hear – I'm buddies with some guys, and I guess there are still some issues today. You know, you're out in the woods, yeah, and who knows what goes on, right? Exactly, and I hated that, you know, because I knew I was the one staying on the track and pushing mm-hmm. hard. And, and uh, you know, there was things that happened a few times that, that was just – yeah, I hate it. That's the biggest thing I hate about off-road was the unknown – who was your biggest rival, do you think, in those races? And again, like you said, it changed. I remember, you know, Edmondson was the hot guy coming from Europe, and Cooper came in, and Kordowski came in. Although I don't think they really challenged you too much. You mentioned Reigns, you mentioned Hawkins. Is there one guy that stands you, out? You know, I remember there for a while. You know, Watsy came over, and he spent a couple of years trying to learn. Mm-hmm. And he was he was a top ten guy. Most people didn't even recognize him, and then all of a sudden, he turned it around. And I think it was the year he won the championship. He dominated it. I think I got hurt that year. I think I had a, a knee problem or something like that. But I remember, you know, he demolished us. He, yep. he really rode well, and uh, he got a lot of credibility for that one year. But a lot of people forgot that it took him two years to, to get up to speed and figure mm-hmm. the series out, too. Yep. And uh, the second year, I was healthy, he was healthy, and we went to Florida, and he won Florida. And then we went to Georgia, and I won Georgia. We went to North Carolina. I think he won North Carolina. We went to South Carolina. I won South Carolina. We <laughs> yeah, went yeah. into Loretta's right. round five, and we were both tied. And I broke him that day. It was like 105 degrees, super humidity, and yeah. I got a bad start, and he was out front, and I was a minute and a half down, and Kodrowski was with me. And I caught Kodrowski past him and waved him with me, go, come on, let's go. And we put our heads down, yeah. and I charged. I mean, I remember I busted my ass to catch him because I knew I couldn't let him get away. And when I caught when I caught Watsy and he turned around and looked at me, <laughs> I could tell just by his look that he gave up. Yeah, yeah. He was like, "Oh shit, where did you come from?" <laughs> right, right. And when we kind of caught up to him at first, I laid back a little bit. Once I got him in my sights, I remember I laid back and I turned around to Kudrowski. I gave Kudrowski thumbs up. We're in the we're in the hunt. They're right there with him and somebody else. And they were one, two, and we were three and four. And we caught him. And I looked at Kudrowski, gave him thumbs up, said, "Okay, calm." drink right now because if we catch them and they see what our pace was yeah. and they step it up, I go, I can't keep going. I got to take a break. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't want them to know I was back there yet. I wanted to take a little bit of a break before I let them know where I was. Uh-huh. And then I remember when he looked back and saw me, he was done. We got the gas at the halfway part and he pulled off his bike and quit. I huh. mean, he flat right out just yeah. quit. And uh, it was hot, humid, miserable. But those were some heavy battles. I remember for a while we were going at it that year. and and uh, But when I first got into came into off-road, I would have to say it was Scott Summers and Scott Plessinger. Right. Both two, and they were both two different type of riders. I mean, if it rained, you can count Plessinger winning. I mean, that guy was the best motor rider to this day. 
Aaron Plessinger showed us that at Indiana. Yeah, yeah. I, um, yeah. How old do you, you feel? Know. How old do you feel right now seeing Aaron Dom winning? Him? Oh, I know. No, I've seen. I remember him when he was a little baby coming right. to the races. You know. I know. Huh? Um, so it, it's cool to see him doing good. Yeah, I worked at KTM factory motocross team in 2000 and 2001 for Kelly Smith, and uh, we did an Ironman GNCC. I raced the industry class back then, and uh, and also, too, so Watsy was around a lot because we were based out of Ohio, and uh, good, yep. guy, good guy, but yeah, not a lot of training going on, a lot of natural talent, and uh, you know what I mean? If it was really hot, he probably was like, oh, shit, this Smith guy, <laughs> you know? He just, yep. he just broke me. Um, it was a good, yeah. and again, it was a good time in GNCC. It was exciting. Like, and then you got fa- Factory Fred and uh, and yourself and and Watsy, and teams were dumping money in, and there was these teams and energy drinks coming in, and yeah, it was an exciting time no, for the series. You know, you're right. That's what uh, you know. GNCC took on and became the biggest series in America for off road. Yeah, yeah. You know, at the absolutely. same time, they got television. You know, Fox Sport came on board too there for a while, and. Mm-hmm. The series just grew, and like you said, it was because of the Fred Andrews and me and and, and Guy Coopers and and Shane Watts and then, uh, you know, a lot of uh, um, Paul Edmondson, you know. I remember I never could understand why Suzuki would hire Paul Edmondson under my tent when I was winning the championships. Yeah, yeah. He came over, and and it was funny because, God, one of the most talented riders I think I've ever rode with. Dude, he was supposed to be – yeah, he was supposed to be the shit when he came over. Like It was like, oh, my God, Edmondson's coming. He's a European, uh, you know, Enduro champion, and – I, I don't yep. know. If he, he was, was the best rider in Europe. Right. Came over here, and I remember I'd go out testing and stuff with him, and he would do front wheel stoppies, and he was more of a trials rider. Uh huh. And I just remember my jaw was on the ground, going, "Holy shit, this guy knows how to ride a motorcycle." Yeah. yeah. But again, you know, the game of GNCCs, which is being fit and knowing when to turn it up and turn it down, and knowing yeah. when, you know, um, I kept him at bay and, and did what I had to do, and and uh, it's a it's a demanding sport. It takes a lot of energy, and it was a lot of work. Well, you know what's crazy, and I'm buddies with Strang now, and I talk to him a lot, and, yeah. and obviously I know these guys at GNCCs, and this was no different when you raced. There's strategy. You're not just going wide open. You're waiting to the last lap. You're waiting to a section or whatever. Uh, it's the line selection. There's a ton of strategy in GNCC, a ton. Uh, yeah, more than people think. That's right. why at the beginning when yep. I was saying, you know, motorcross, the yep. fastest guy sometimes wins most right. of the time, but... In GNCC, you got to have a strategy. You got to have a game plan. You got to know your competitors. You got to know each course. You got to. And for me, coming from California, see, I'm the only guy west of the Mississippi to ever win GNCCs. Yeah. And uh, and and I didn't have a lot of fan base back there at the beginning, and I didn't have a lot of help out in the trails. You know, the friend Andrews right. and them, they would have 30, 40 friends out in the trails. So sure. at all the big bad mud holes, they would already have lines scoped out and be waiting for them and point them in the good direction. You know, and I'd come in there blind and get stuck or something. You know or waste a lot of energy trying to get out of it and stuff. So I learned, for me, most of my strategies in those type of days were I, I, I would follow. If I knew if we were around Ohio area, I knew Freddie had a lot of people. Out <laughs> I'd follow Freddie for two, three laps. Yeah, yeah. And uh, until I knew where all the good lines were. And then at gas, usually at gas is when my race started for me. And that, as long as I had the leaders inside at gas, as long as I came in and they yeah, were yeah. not far ahead of me, gas time, when I gassed up and from there on to the finish was the race for me. You never, never panicked or anything. You're like, okay, I got these guys. I got it figured out. Yeah. Yeah, I remember we did a GNCC in Texas one year, and it was the first lap, and um, Ryan Hughes was in it. And I was running about fifth, I think. I was a little ways back. I usually like to be up third or fourth. I mm-hmm. want to see the leaders, you know. Yeah. But it was real close. We were all right there on the first lap. I could see all top. I was running fifth, and Hughes went by me like I was standing still, <laughs> wide open on the side of the hill, clipping trees, like like it was yeah, yeah. like it was the last lap of the race. Right. And I remember just shaking my head going, geez, the leader's right there. They're, yeah, not, yeah. they're not away from us. Right. And I'm drinking out of my Camelback, trying to hydrate good for the last half of the race. And he comes up with Lafferty at that time, and him and Lafferty are banging bars. And 
we go down this road and I'm sitting back watching these two battle at it like they're I'm battling for position and we're still on the first lap. <laughs> and we turn the corner to go into a single track and Hughes lost the front wheel and he crashed and I remember looking at him going, Jesus it's gonna be a long day for you. You are not getting and this, at, the, yeah. <laughs> at the end of the day he does I guess he broke off his front fender. Right, I don't even know what place right. he got, but it was I went on to win it, and I think it might have been the day Krudowski got a second, so it was pretty good because me and him used to train a lot together. Did Webb ever try to make you ride the DRZ? Um, did you always get no, out of that? That was Kudrowski. Okay. They hired Kudrowski for that. <laughs> right. I actually did race it that one year. Did actually, you? I raced it two years in the work series. That was a bad idea, But wasn't I never it? had to race it in the GNCCs. <laughs> I only rode – me, right. him, and Steve Hatch rode it in the work series. Yeah, yeah. And we actually went one, two, three. Uh, Kudrowski won, and I got second, and Hatch got third. You were probably like, hey, my very Mike, first year – Mike, I'm not riding that thing in the woods. I am not going to do that. You no, know, they. Yeah, I wouldn't want to do the woods. We try, but they would. Yeah. They would stall, and, and they yeah. were heavy. Uh, no doubt. We finally, finally put Kadrowski on RM250 at the end of his career in the woods again. Yeah. Um, out of all the races you've done and everything else, and I guess more, I'm talking moto side or whatever. But even GNCC, is there a bike that stood out for you that you love the most? Is there a bike that you just got along with, you know, the most? Um, one that stands out at all? Uh, I would have to say, like, the 06, 07 RM250s were good. Yeah, they were, weren't they? Yeah. yeah. I remember yeah, they... I, I was working at Yamaha and factory Yamaha, working for Red Dog Ferry as his mechanic, and they basically took the four-stroke cylinder power valve design from a YZ250 and put on the RM, and it worked great, because Carmichael, too, was yeah. there then, and... Yeah, you're right. They, I remember the cylinders were identical almost. That's right. Yeah, they were good. Yeah, they were good bikes. Um. What about your Rinaldi bikes? Were they? I mean, I know you said you had to ride them the way that. Were they that trick, or were they that cool? Or they were. You know, back then they were exotic works bikes. Yeah, you know, yeah, for sure. Don't get the ride or see today. They were all magnesium cases, handmade. You know, mm-hmm. foot pegs, and and everything was. As funny as they were a trick, they were also junk. No, really. Um, yeah, yeah. Not 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 saying that in a bad way. I yeah, remember yeah. my practice bike was the biggest rattle trap you ever rode. Jeez. The foot pegs would be at a forty five degree angle because. You know, when I'd come back from a race, they'd take all the shifter, foot pay, kickstarters, everything off and put them on my practice bike, and I'd run that for a couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. But because they were exotic work bikes, they weren't made to last. Right, right, yeah. So the brake pedals didn't have bushings inside. They were just a bullet, a piece of aluminum drilled out with a pin through it, you know. And after 30, 40, 50 minutes, you know, because we'd place them every moto as a brand-new bike every race. Yeah. So my race bike was absolutely bitching. I mean, they were some of the best bikes ever. Yeah, I bet. Just my practice yeah. bike would get, you know, it would just get thrashed, and, and the foot pigs would start around. The Kickstarter wouldn't stay in because nothing was made to last. Brake pads back then. Yeah. You probably remember the Y3 pad. Yeah. They yeah. last 30-minute moto. Yeah, yeah. They, Dude, they, were, they weren't made to last, you know. And, and as production bikes, we started racing production bikes. The production bike had to get better, but they also got heavier because they got to have, you know, if everything wore out right away, everybody would bitch about it. So they got bushings yeah. and bearings and stuff like that, whereas the factory bikes were – were one-offs, and they were changing parts out of every, every moto. The difference between the 88... Good, yeah. I, Go ahead. I, well, I was going to say one of my biggest changes uh, between 88 and 89 was right. the forks. That's what I was going to say. You know, 88, yeah. we had the factory Kayaba, you know, conventional fork, and to me, to this day, that was the best fork ever. Oh, really, huh? I remember you talking with Johnny O'Mara about yeah, it, yeah. and they were just really, really good. Yeah. And then that was the first year, 89, we went to the upside down. Mm-hmm. And I remember Suzuki, when I went testing in Japan, uh, I'd, I'd ride the bike and I didn't like the forks and I was like complaining about them and this mm-hmm. and that. And we'd go back to the factory shop and I'm like, Hey, can we just take, and they're like, Nope, 
you can't even <laughs> practice. You can't even try them. You can't even yeah, compare. Yeah. We know they're better. Yeah, yeah. But we have a five-year commitment with uh, with Kayaba and Showa to build upside downs, and right. And we know they're not as good as your last year fork, but we're going to get them there someday. So I had no choice but to yeah to go with the upside downs. But I remember those uh, conventional Kayabas were really good. Yeah, they a lot of politics go into that. People don't realize that. Like even on, well, it know, is. Yeah. It, it was a five-year commitment. You know, Showa and Kayaba said, "Look, if we're going to go to upside downs, we're not. You know, they're not going to like them right away." But yeah. You know, it's going to take time and technology, you know, time and, and to get them right. Mm-hmm. So you got to give us five years of a commitment for us to build all the tooling to make them. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And and I think it's the same thing going on with the Air Forks today. You know, the yep. early Air Forks, nobody really likes them. We're, we're getting along with them. But they're going to get them dialed in. They're going to get bitching. Yeah. But right now, we're still struggling with them. I know. I agree. Yeah, these guys, I talk to these guys every weekend. Thank God they hate them. Um, is there a look? You've won a ton of races all over. Is there a race or two that stands out for you? One of those days, and everybody has them as a racer where they just everything went right, everything clicked. Is there a couple of races to you that stand out at all? I do know that Virginia City Grand Prix race was really cool, right. and, and it seemed like I couldn't do nothing wrong. Yeah, yeah. And I beat Larry Ross and all that. That was really a standout race. Sure. The Argentina GP when I when I won the GP down there in Argentina. Mm-hmm. Uh, against Eric Gabor's, that was a real um, emotional day. Uh, there's a lot more to that story than than a lot of people know. My bike didn't even show up till the official about 20 minutes before the official time practice was over. Oh, jeez! <laughs> and uh, I was supposed to get on Eric Gabor's factory spare Honda that he had there. Mm-hmm. And um, oh God, who was the factory Honda? Um, what about Whitelock? Yep, that's who it was. Steve Whitelock back then. Yeah, yeah. Steve Whitelock, yep, he had a uh, Gabor's, he was there with Gabor's, and he had a factory spare bike, and they had it all, we ran it through tech and everything, because I had, I had to ride the final practice in order to be able to ride the GP, Mm -hmm. and my bike hadn't arrived yet, and then right before that final practice, my bike arrived, and I'll never forget, Steve came over and says, hey, look, you can still ride our bike, you know, you just, and that was the last race of the season, and Eric Gabor's could clinch the championship that day, Uh and they said, look, you can't get in between him and, and I think it was Vandenberg. Yeah. Um, if you're out front, by all means, you can win, do what you need to do. But if Vandenberg's lead and you're second and, and Eric's behind you, you got to let Eric go. And I said, okay, no problem. And then when my bike showed up, they said, look, you can ride your bike or you can ride the factory bike, whichever one you want. I said, you know what? I think I'll ride my stock Honda. I think I'm more comfortable on it. Really, huh? He went wow. out yeah, and yeah. went out and won both motos. I was scared to death. The clutch lever alone, I remember they told me, was $300. <laughs> you know, and I'm a, yeah. a young kid living in South America. Look at this exotic right. Honda. You know, back then they were factory Hondas. And I'm right. going, Wow. I might crash that thing. I better go ride my own bike. <laughs> and how about, like, just like I th- said at the beginning of the show, like, you're this dude in Brazil. Like, you know, you weren't an American superstar by any means. You're a solid rider. You go down there. You know, Gabor's, Vandenberg, these are these are legends of the sport, and, you, and you're working them down in Brazil. You're like, hey, check me out. That must have been pretty cool. Yeah. You know? I, I go back to that first moto, you know, yeah. even 86 when I took third in the GP. I don't think that really meant as much to me. I mean, it was cool. Mickey Diamond won it. Yeah. I know Eddie Warren was down there also. Eddie Warren got seventh because he just came. He was riding for Kawasaki. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I beat Eddie and all them, and I got third. That was cool. But I, that next year in 87, when I won that first moto, the last couple laps of the moto, it was just unreal. The, the reality of, God, oh, my God, I'm going to win a GP. I'm going to win a moto, you know, my first huge race, even though I was winning races in Brazil and stuff. And, you know, I beat Jeff Ward in a couple of Golden States and stuff like that back earlier, and yep. it, it was just really that first moto at the GP, and then and then the crash in the second moto on the start and come from behind like I did. Yeah, yeah. It, it was it was it was a real emotional, and then to go down to Argentina the next week and win both motos. Yeah, yeah. You're like, hey, check um, me out. It's not it's not just me. It's not my track or whatever. And, and then yeah. and then after I came home, the GNCC series, I tell a lot of people this story, which is a cool. 
I, I don't ever feel like the first year I won the GNCC championship, I never felt like I really deserved it. I kind of felt like I lucked into it that year. Okay. Um, I didn't like them. Mike Webb made the commitment that, hey, Team Suzuki's, we're not going to do Enduros and all this other stuff anymore. We're just going to commit to the GNCC series. And mm-hmm. I remember I was getting older. I think I was like 35 already. And I'm like, man, I'm almost too old to get this, you know, figure this game out. And the year I won it, the first year I won it, I just kind of remember, I don't remember if some of the riders had trouble or whatever, but at the end of the year, I won it. And I was like, wow. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I lucked into that, you know. But the second year, I came back and dominated again the second year. That's when I really kind of gave myself the credit, you know, that I, I was as good as I was. And the third year, I think I had an injury. Shane Watts won. I came back and won two more years in a row again. And then I lost it again to, might have been, um, oh, a Barry Hawk. And then I came back and won it again. Mm-hmm. You know, I got to say that year was probably one of my biggest when I was 40 years old. Yeah, people counted you out. Yeah, yeah. championship at 40. Right. It, you know, I don't know. I'm getting older and older. I'm 51 now. But <laughs> to think that I, you know, to mm-hmm. think, I don't know how many people are going to do that again at 40 years old. That's tough. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I do remember you were an underdog guy. Like, ah, it's time's passed. You know what I mean? And whatever. And, yeah. And that was one of the good things about it was I didn't put any pressure on myself. I'd already won four championships. Mm-hmm. Mike was already hiring, you know, younger riders to come in, uh, Glenn Kearney's and, and uh, even Josh Strange, you know, we were bringing mm-hmm. him in and, and, uh, you know, I didn't really put all the pressure on myself. I was just kind of riding out my retirement, you know, going to go out and do the best I can. And, mm-hmm. and next thing I know, I go into the summer break with a three-point lead, and then we come out of the summer break, and I thought me and Jason Raines that year were battling. Yep. And I come out of the summer break, and I beat Jason Raines, and two of his teammates beat him. I think he gets a fourth or something. I'm like, God, Yamaha was stupid. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I got a 13-point lead with three with uh, now three races to go. And uh-huh. I'm like, oh, my God, now it's my race to lose. Yeah, yeah. And then the pressure hit. Right, Those last right. three races wore me out. <laughs> yeah. Because up until then, I was just having fun. Right, right. I, I mean, I was training because I like to train and do whatever I like to do. But I wasn't putting a lot of pressure on myself. And Suzuki wasn't putting pressure on me, you know. Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden, you know, three races to go, I think I had like a 13, 14-point lead. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm going to look pretty stupid if I lose this championship now. i I got to step it up. i got to win it now. Yeah, yeah. And then the pressure hit. And then it <laughs> took energy out of me. You know, uh, Mike Webb is, uh, of course, longtime Suzuki off-road manager forever, and now he runs the Motocross Supercross team. And I don't know how you yeah, always I got, got the phone with him last night. Okay, I was going to say, I don't know how you get along with him now or how you did back then. One of my favorite people in the pits. Nowadays, I love the yeah, guy. Yeah, no, no, he's good. You know, he's a he good was dude. at my wedding. Me and matter of fact, he's married to a Brazilian. I introduced them together. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got real good contacts with him and his wife. Yeah, yeah. And Mike talk all the time. We try not to talk much about racing and stuff. I try right. with more family, talking about the wives, the house, the kids. You know, um, yeah, yeah. And we do vacations and stuff together. Me, him, right. and Kudrowski kind of really clicked. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we're all three all real close still. Dude, you know what's good for me? Like as a guy in the pits, reporting reporting on things and talking to teams and all that. Mike doesn't act like we're curing brain cancer. You know what I mean? He's He's got a good attitude, and I like that. He's a yep. great guy to talk to, and he'll tell you stuff. Look, I can't say that, or I can't say this, or or he'll say, hey, don't, you know, you didn't hear it from me, or this is what's going on, and I just like that as a reporter. He's a refreshing guy. He's real, you know? So You know, and he's good. He helps out the riders, and, and I got to say, as, as growing up, you know, I never tried to go anywhere else. I've been with Suzuki since basically my GP career since mm-hmm. 1988. Yeah. And I still ride Suzuki's today, you know, other than that stunt in 2012 when I went over and worked for Honda, but I still had my Suzuki here that I rode. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been a Suzuki guy my whole life, and Mike Mike has always was one of the guys, he was fighting for the riders. Mm-hmm. Um, he he was a good manager, one of my best team managers I've ever had. 
Yeah, no doubt. Well, you know, hey, we became um, good friends, and and uh, of course, we always had our issues. You know, yeah. we laugh about them now. We sure we get around and laugh about them, but uh, yeah, it, it, he's a great guy. Well, thanks for doing this, Rodney. I, I appreciate it. Uh, AMA Hall of Famer, uh, GNCC champion, uh, GP champion, uh, Rodney Smith. Thank you for uh, for taking the time for the BTOSports.com Racer X mm-hmm. podcast. Uh, loved it. Always wanted to talk to you and get to track you down and, and everything else. And, uh, man, when you go through and look at your results, like I said on the show earlier, like some solid results in Supercross and, and Motocross, you know? So, um, yeah, thank you very much. No, I had a great career, you know, and it, it extended across a bunch of different type of avenues. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, really, like, you know, again, Supercross, Motocross, um, GPs, off-road. Yeah, it's crazy. So, um, truly one of the, the ta- most talented guys out there. And uh, thank you for doing this. Appreciate it. No, thank you very much. Glad. Thank you for having me. All right. See you, Rodney. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. This has been the BTOsports.com podcast show presented by Fox Racing. Don't forget to check out some of our past shows, including motocross legends such as The Bad Boy, Rick Johnson. I looked down and my hand was junk. I mean, yeah. I was sitting over to the side. The tendons were jerking in weird places. And my biggest disappointment with Danny Sorbic is that he never said sorry. Because Danny and I were friends, and we've never talked since. Brian Lunas. Before the 500 event, Dave and I fly to Germany, go down to Stuttgart. There's this little shop out the back of the mall factory. We get our cylinders, take them back, and, you know, off we go. And, you know, we ran Nicosil Cylinders as a factory part for a handful of years before anybody ever saw it in production. Dave Arnold. And, and Miguel was all, you know how he did the big pancake thing? Right. And, right. and he's got the thing, he's completely laying on the gas tank trying to miss his tree. I mean, he would have gone even harder, jumped farther if that tree hadn't been, you know, yeah. if, if it hadn't been there. The Hurricane Bob Hanna. I love the guy. I don't dislike I think he's the greatest competitor this sport ever had. That absolutely 100% in my mind. I firmly believe that statement I said about these modern-day guys in Switzerland or Poland or Belgium on 45 minutes on the same bike. You're not beating Roger. Are you crazy? They're not doing it. If they think they're so much better nowadays than they were in those days, they're fools. They're different bikes, different times. The beast from the east, Damon Bradshaw. It got to the point where I didn't want to leave home, and once I got to the race, I wasn't into it. If I wasn't going to give 100%, I'm not going to take the money. The working class hero, Doug Henry. It was definitely an emotional moment for me, just thinking to myself, that's it, you know, and it's, it's amazing the stuff that goes through your head in a short amount of time of the things that, you know, that I was going to miss. The daughter, Ron Machine. Until you really open your ears and you want to listen to what they're saying, it's like being a dead horse, you know, and I know from personal experience, did anybody ever sit me down? Of course they did. Everybody did. Pro Circuits, Mitch Payton. There's two ways to make the money. One is you can sign for money, or two, you can earn the money. I'm a high believer in earning the money. I think they ride better when they earn the money. Seven-time Jeremy McGrath. I was so mad, like so disappointed and so frustrated that I had pulled pick and I left. Every point counts. I could kick myself to this day for not just riding around in tents. Been no problem. My, my ego got in the way, you know? The O Show, Johnny Omar. Stuff that 
that you could you sit there if you didn't even want to ride it. You just wanted to just look at it all day. I mean, I got a chance to test all that. I like that era I was in. I really do. Search Pulp MX in the iTunes store to enjoy these and over 500 more great motocross podcasts. The days and the months and the years go 